The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Welcome to episode 26 of the Good Investing Podcast. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm CEO and co-founder of Ethical Partners. I've been looking forward to putting this episode together for some time. Tarun Gupta is the CEO of Stockland, one of Australia's biggest landowners, known in particular for its residential projects, but it also owns, develops and manages industrial retail and office assets. I first met Tarun in 1995 in Newcastle. We worked closely together in retail shopping centres. Thinking back to then, I always remember a very measured, hardworking, quiet achiever, a very determined person with a very good sense of humour and someone who listened more than he talked. Tarun has a fascinating story to tell. Without going too much into it now, he'll do that in just a few minutes. But Tarun came from very humble beginnings. He initially came to Australia to study with hardly a dollar to his name. He got any part-time work he could and took his opportunities. From assistant marketing manager at Charles Town Square in Newcastle, he went on to many different senior executive roles at Lendlease over 25 years, culminating in the role of CFO. In mid-2021, he joined Stockland as its CEO and board member. Enjoy my discussion with Tarun Gupta. Tarun, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Happy to be here, Matt. And it seems like well, yesterday we were um, supervising Humphrey B. Bear and wondering which times we should put our school holiday shows on and trying to supervise Kelly Slater, um, making sure everyone was safe in the Centre Court appearances. Remember you did. that well? I do, I do. Um, you didn't mention a fluffy, rowdy rabbit, <laughs> the mascot of the shopping centre. Yes, the rowdy rabbit. You were the uh, rowdy rabbit expert from memory. In I fact, was. Uh, the r- rumour has it when the rowdy rabbit character didn't turn up once you actually had to get in the suits. Is that true or is that just a, just a rumour? No, I have limitations to my talent, so <laughs> I didn't go in that direction. <laughs> Look, I'm, um, thanks, for, thanks again for, for spending time with me. Um, I'm, I'm keen to go through the Tarun Gupta story before we move into your current role at Stockland. And, and I'd love to start at the beginning. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about your upbringing in India, um, your family and so on? Yeah, I grew up in the north of India, mainly in uh, the biggest state in India called Uttar Pradesh. Um, my father was a police officer, which meant I lived in about 10 different towns and cities till I was in year seven. Um and just a bit bit of background before that, my parents uh, were born in what is now Pakistan. And like many North Indians, they uh, came into India as uh, refugees. So growing up in my early years, I used to hear a lot of stories about the partition of India, which uh, had, had, had a big impact. Yeah, it was a Difficult, difficult time, and the limited reading I've done on that on that period. What what values do you think that taught you, your, your upbringing, and how you think about life? Yeah, I think my um, earliest memories are as as for most people, you know, you spend time with your parents, um, mum and dad, and you take your values and your cues from them. And uh, a lot of it was from my mum and dad, but also my wider family. You got to remember, you know, all of my extended family on both the father, my dad and my mum's side um, came as refugees. So the stories were about how they established themselves or reestablished their lives and then worked, worked through, which was really hard work. 
um, to get to the positions they were in when I, I came onto planet Earth. So hard work, um, can-do attitude, uh, obviously very much values-driven um, family values, but also values that got my family at the time to where they were, which for my dad, um, he was a senior police officer. So he'd been through, um, you know, self-education, got, he initially joined the Air Force, then the army and then self-studied um, to join the police force and became a high-ranking officer. So a lot of the stories I would hear would be about those struggles, but also the the rewards that come from hard work. Absolutely. I, I, I read somewhere that your father was in the anti-corruption squad. So I imagine some of the values also include that, you know, that honesty and integrity that, that you would have heard a lot about at home in your upbringing. Uh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, at the time and probably still now, um, you know, there is corruption and graft in, in uh, countries like India. And I saw my dad struggle with it because he was one of those rare, honest um, police officers. And uh, he actually retired as the director general of the anti-corruption department, which its main purpose was to catch other corrupt police officers. So you can imagine he wasn't always the most popular man <laughs> amongst his own, own police force. But th- what it taught me was, um, you know, the, the, as you say, the integrity, the honesty and, and, and what that brings, uh, in the long run, which is peace of mind. You know, dad always said, um, and he, I saw him yesterday, lives, uh, not far away from me here in Bondi. Um, he wanted to sleep well at night and, and that's how he made his decisions. So that had a big impact. It's a pretty good rule to live your life by. That's for sure. What made you choose Australia? So, so you've, so you've studied in India and then you were looking for a university degree or well, this was more postgraduate. Just run us through that transition and that thinking. Yeah, so I I did um, my bachelor's in economics at Delhi University. And a lot of Indians um, growing up at at that point uh, either went into the, you know, bureaucracy, the public service, which I didn't have aspirations for because I'd been through through my dad's experience or the people were getting into business or so doing MBAs um, and that's what I wanted to do um, and my actually my dad encouraged me to um, apply overseas um, I think he was living vicariously through through me his own ambitions that he couldn't fulfill so that's what made me apply I did the GMAT test at the time that you do and uh, applied uh, actually to universities predominantly in the UK and US because most Indians were going there. Australia was not really on the map, but I applied to Australian universities as well and uh, long story short, ended up here. And Newcastle? That wouldn't have, wouldn't, you know, if you gave me a couple of guesses, I probably wouldn't pick Newcastle. So why Newcastle? Um a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, why Australia? Because I did have admission in 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 the UK and and US. I think firstly, um, the the more rational reason was Australia allows overseas students to work um, legally twenty hours a week, which was a big factor in my decision. Because I didn't have really the finances to put myself through as an overseas student because uh, the you know the fees are very high. So that was the rational part, but the uh, emotional part of the attachment was the weather in Australia is kinder than US and, and UK. And of course, uh, 
Aussies and uh, Indians love uh, love cricket. So they were the emotional part of me choosing Australia. And Newcastle is where where I got uh, admission, but it was also not the most expensive MBA program. And I did have to look at my ability to afford, uh, but it was a fantastic um, experience uh, that I went through. Is it true actually your love of cricket means one of your um, long-stated goals is to actually to own an IPL team is is that true or is that just rumor yeah no, that's just rumor <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe the local um, Hastings parade Bondi Bondi <laughs> cricket club I can sponsor but that's about it <laughs> and what was your what was your first job up in Newcastle my my first uh, actually the first four weeks I, I didn't um, it was 1992, so Australia was in deep recession, the last recession we really had. And this is up in Newcastle, BHP steels were closed, steel mills were closing, so it was pretty tough. First few, three, four weeks, I had two jobs, but I wouldn't call them jobs because I spent money rather than earning them. The first was uh, delivering pamphlets around the local suburb. I borrowed my mate's bicycle. That didn't last long because I got chased down by dogs and hurt myself. Uh, so I gave that up. The second was um, door knocking on the central coast, selling home improvements like cladding. And that didn't work very long because I didn't make much money out of that. Uh, but the real job I got was um, uh, as a kitchen hand in an Indian restaurant um, on uh, down at Hunter Street in Newcastle. So that was my first real job. And then what, what was the process you undertook to, to look for a more permanent job? And I, I know you worked through that MBA to make ends meet and uh, progress through various different roles. But what was the process you undertook for looking for a more permanent professional job related to your degree and, and your MBA? Yeah, so I did the MBA over sort of two and a half years. I actually transferred to University of Adelaide to do part of the MBA. I became a chef. I still love cooking. Um, so that's how I got through. Um, I learned how to cook to get myself through uni. Uh, but as I was finishing the MBA, I, I decided that you know, Australia was home. I loved the country, loved the people, the culture and what Australia offers. And uh, then I just started to uh, get into the workforce. I went to the careers office, which we used to have them at the universities and went in there and there was a few application forms uh, by companies such as, um, I think it was Unilever, ANZ and Lendlease. They're the three where I got called for interviews and ended up getting into Lendlease. And that was assistant marketing manager at Charlestown. Was that the first role? It was. It was yes. the first role. It was yeah. the first role, and my first first task was actually um, our other colleague uh, Brett Robson was the marketing manager, uh, who you and I know. And the first task he gave me was to put out the signs in the A-frames mm. for the Rowdy Rabbit Show, who was coming on Saturday at ten a.m. to entertain the kids. The old twenty by thirty signs, double-sided, double-sided, double-sided. Yeah. Um, you know, professionally made signs. Yes, of that not was hand, my, not handwritten, not handwritten, never, no, never. And actually, it wasn't an A-frame. That was a, a safety hazard. So it was a proper stand-up frame. Oh, stand-up frame. Got it. Yes. All right. No, that's um, <laughs> no, that's good. Focus on safety. Very, very important. And, and and so, what? Thinking back then, what was your ambition at the time? Did you have a view as to where you wanted to get to by a certain age, or which direction you wanted to go? How were you thinking about things at that point? No, to be frank, um, I I didn't didn't have a view, and and in fact, I don't think you know 
I, I look, look, I, I did have a plan in the first few months. Uh, I was asked to do a development plan. This is as a graduate. So you're still in self-discovery mode. You don't know what you're really good at or not. Uh, and in that development plan, you had to actually nominate in five years time, where did you see yourself? So that's how my initial career progression started because I nominated, even though I started in marketing, I nominated funds management as one of the options. And the reason was, uh, I, used, you know, I was in Charlestown Square and when the fund managers used to come to the uh, shopping center, everyone, you know, the whole center would get a clean and everyone would be very excited. And I went, hmm, well, who are these people? And and they were the owner's reps. Uh, they they represented the owners of the shopping center. I thought, oh, that would be cool to be in that position. Uh, so that's how my first career aspiration started, mm. uh, to get into funds management uh, over five years. It's amazing. A lot of people have got an absolute defined job they want to see themselves in. A lot don't. Um, I'm a believer that good people find their own path and um, no matter how broad or specific their aspirations are early on, because it's very hard to know, um, particularly when you only get a couple of job offers or maybe one. I remember getting 11 on-campus interviews in 1992 around the same time. I got one job offer. I took it. So <laughs> I went down on a path based on that, based on um, pure chance rather than necessarily a great aspiration. Um, and the jobs after Charlestown Square, so we know you were CFO of Lendlease some 20 years later, roughly. Um, what were the roles after Charlestown? Yes, uh, just to build on what you said, and, you know, I say this to our graduates, I'm a big, you know, I got a great opportunity as a graduate, so I always, um, wherever I've been, invest very heavily in graduate programs. We've doubled our intake uh, since I joined at uh, Stockland. And that's what I say to them when they come in uh, is uh, when you're starting off, you don't know what you're really going to be good at, what you really enjoy. So the first few years, it's about just learning, just saying yes to everything, getting all sorts of experiences and then really figuring out what you're good at, what you like, because I think that's the when I reflect on my career, I'm sure you 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 the same, Matt. Is if you're enjoying what you do, you can be then really good at it. Um, and uh, um, that that's the advice I give the graduates. So I followed that advice myself. Um, uh, I worked uh, so the first five years. I worked in retail shopping centers, which is where I got my grounding in real estate because they were really microcosms of the real estate industry. Uh, they still are, but even so in those days, because they were heavy development focus for shopping centers, they were the preferred asset class at the time. Um, so I worked at, uh, yeah, Charlestown Square. I worked here in Australia Square in Sydney. I then went to Penrith Plaza, uh, Bankstown Square, Dandenong Plaza, some, some pretty important, uh, significant, um, shopping centers. So, so I did that first five years and then I actually realized my aspiration to get into funds management when, um, about year five, I got called in, um, and started in the Australian prime property funds in the shopping center portfolio, then worked my way up to fund manager over the next few years, and then into uh, running Australian funds management, globally running the funds management business, and then branched on running into the Australian property business for Len Lease and then CFO. So quite a diverse um, uh, career journey, um, you know, international. I, I, I still look back and go, 
probably had three careers in one company in funds management, retail, and then general development and general management. So, and of course, finance for four years, which was never part of my co-competency, but uh, yeah, I did um, CFO role for four and a half years. I think um, those messages to, to graduates are, are, are quite true. It's, it's almost like you don't know what you're going to do, do what you're good at, uh, do something that's worthwhile and, and say yes. And that's quite refreshing when you get asked to do something or you ask someone else to do something and they go, yeah, I'll give it a go. And uh, you never know where that, that will lead. Um, so you got into your, your funds management um, area, which was good. You worked your way there. And I think that's, that is a, one of the things, one of the aspects of a very, very good company offered you many roles and, um, and, and career options within the one group. So you maintain a stable base of knowing the company, but you get um, other opportunities, which, um, which is always fantastic. When you walked away from Lend-Lease, what, what are the main learnings you took from 25 years at one company? Oh, I had a fantastic time at Lend-Lease. I'm so grateful for the 26 years I, I uh, spent there. I think I I took away, um, you know, Lend-Lease um, and all, you know, many great companies have a few things in common, as I'm realizing also at Stockland, it's um, values of a very strong values-driven business. Sustainability um, in its broadest sense was very, very strong right from the day, day, um, day I started. So they were two things that, that have carried me. I think leadership, uh, different scaling leadership because, um, the mantra used to be, um, I think you were the same, um, you know, throw them in the deep end and see how they go. And uh, in most cases, people would swim and learn from it. And that was definitely what I was, I went through and that, that, you know, the support of leadership and then having a, you know, diversified business, international experience, all of those things are now, when I look back, are helping me in doing my job here at Stockland, which is, you know, even though we're running a, you know, large Australian operation, that international experience, watching what's happened in international markets really has a big impact on how I make decisions today. So that diversity of uh, career, working across almost every property sector you can think of, I've had experience in development, construction, investment management and international. So uh, very grateful for the opportunities and the, you know, um, the learnings that that uh, I took away. And what, what triggered the move? Obviously a bigger role, CEO, so natural progression, but any other factors that kind of triggered that move from then to Stockland? Well, well I, I, I was, I got the phone call um, and, you know, it's always had respect for Stockland. It's, you know, 70 years in the Australian market. I competed against the company in prior, prior roles. So when that phone call came it was a call you take seriously because they only i think um not i think i know i'm only <laughs> the fifth ceo of stockland in 70 years so these are very privileged um you know you know it, it's it's really amazing opportunities when you get the phone call so once i opened my mind to it i i went for it uh, because i saw a great opportunity great platform um, that the company had, but I saw opportunities to take it to to a different place and 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 grow on that strong platform that was there. And when you looked at it, did you did you feel as though there was a significant transformation needed or major changes needed? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't 
use the word transformation. I would use, because um, when I joined, as I said, it was a strong platform, what my predecessors had, had worked on. I think there was, a, you know, in the board interview and also what I shared with the team early on in the strategic review, from outside in, you could see there was, you know, as they say, you know, confront the brutal facts about organizations and confront them quickly. And I saw two, two big, big, um, big things that we needed to address, um, which were, one was the capital allocation, being a diversified property company, really the, the alpha and the outperformance we can create by is, is by making the right choices in capital allocation with sectors that have tailwinds and downwading sectors that may have future headwinds. And I think when I joined, there was our capital allocation was overweight sectors that had more headwinds than tailwinds. Um, and then the second one was access to capital. Um, you know, big diversified groups like Stockland, um, our cost of capital was high, remains high. And to effectively grow platforms and, grow your market position and to access the best opportunities you need access to capital and and that wasn't really available effectively at the time and they were the two early things i saw which we set out to then address so i, I just want to pause there for a second so so 70 year old company 17 billion dollars worth of assets 2000 people and those two points are, are very well made as as you as you did your research and assessed um, what, you know, what 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 you could do moving forward? I mean, where did you where did you take your advice from? Obviously, um, exemplary background and experience. But did, is there is there consultants? Is there a life coach? Is there close confidants, friends? I mean, how, how do you sum up those strategic issues and uh, and try and get them right and communicate them in the right way? Perhaps not at the interview phase, but in that first kind of six months of of, of being in the seat. Yeah, I had all of those supporting me, all the things he said. So I had and do have a coach, a personal coach, um, which, which, um, which is absolutely essential. Um, you know, even as CEOs, we always learning and then context always changing. I rely on a lot on my, you know, there are friends I bounce ideas off. I've got other uh, consultants and other market participants. I think my wife is uh, always a, a very, you know, a voice of reason, especially because she's not from the business world. So if I give her some context, it's amazing how quickly she can yeah, give me the nub of the issue, which I'm failing to see. Um, so yeah, I do all that, but the actual strategy process and as, as most um, people will say, strategy is actually a process. It's not some eureka ideas that I possessed. I had certain hypotheses that I just mentioned, the two brutal facts, if you want to call it. But we, we, we set out to achieve um, or engage on a very heavily curated six-month program. And it was actually six months. I joined in June two years ago and we announced the strategy in November, so almost close to six months, where I had my senior leadership team, my Stockland leadership team, who was meeting every twice a week. We had a um, the top 50 who were engaged and then the board, obviously. And the board and the SLT were in a very heavily curated program of coming through with the new strategic direction for the company. And we did have consultant helping us, but that was more in running the process and curation. But it was a strategy that actually the 
we developed together. And the beauty about that was some of my hypotheses either got stronger as I went through the process that I had six months in the garden thinking about, but more importantly, um, there was things that came up that I hadn't anticipated because I hadn't been at Stockland. I didn't know the core inner inert strengths of Stockland. And they, they gave me more conviction on some of the moves we now making. So that's the process we, we ran. So it was actually quite a collaborative, um, and like, engaged, like like engaged process. And, and the advantage matter of that is that today, um, and, um, you can talk to the senior team at um, at Stockland. We are very aligned on where we're going. We have high conviction, but also high alignment because of that process. Yeah, I like that. So, so strategy is a is a process. I'm going to kind of bottle that. We're going to bring that out in the future. Strategy is a process, and I think you end up getting a better answer by the sounds, and then importantly, moving forward, um, the team's actually behind it. So. Um, I like that. I'm going to use that later, um, if you don't mind. Okay, so, it was, so you're saying it was six months um, between when you took the role and that kind of first strategy document um, when it was released. And during that, you reinforce your purpose. So we believe there was a better way to live. Was that a new purpose or was that a refined purpose or uh, what was the old purpose? Maybe run us through that. That's kind of the starting point, isn't it? It it was a purpose that existed um, when I joined. And um, I, you know, as most people coming in from outside, I had the intention of, you know, making sure the purpose was relevant, um, the values as well. I had outside in an intention to test those and of course the strategy they were the three things i wanted to do in the first six months and this is where as i said my hypotheses were either proven or i was surprised where i was surprised was the clarity of purpose that drove the organization and the level at which it permeated within the organization um so we, we believe there is a better way to live or a better way to live is really what drives our people. And I found that out very early on and it was authentic and at all levels of the organization. Well, it's so quite, that, quite enduring too. I mean, when, when's that not going to be relevant? Exactly. So, so that was the other part I was going to say. Better way to live, obviously, in our residential businesses, direct correlation and impact. But it was also, and this is the part I, I was surprised with, better way to live is every, our commercial property businesses, our shopping town centers, our logistics assets, our workplace assets, our mixed use assets, they are all contributing to the community and a better way to live. So so I, I, I took a lot of comfort from that. And then the values, our values are community, accountability, respect, and excellence, which stands for care. And that culture of care uh, was also very, very strong. So I very quickly formed the view talking to the team. There were two things I didn't want to change. In fact, I wanted to dial up. And what I learned was that uh, this beautiful purpose we had wasn't actually well understood by external stakeholders, by market participants as, as yourself. So over the last two years, we've been putting it out more. Um, but that's that's how it came about. And then the third part that that's now become our vision actually came through the um 
the workshops we were doing uh, uh, in the top 50, I remember we were in COVID lockdown. So first nine months as CEO, I was doing on Zoom calls, which was a little bit challenging because I couldn't actually meet my team physically. But I remember our top 50, we were having this big strategy for our brainstorm sort of building session. And that's where the term, the create, you know, leading creator and curator of connected communities came. And that captured the essence of what's inherent in our DNA, which is creating communities. Uh, and that that goes beyond just uh, residential communities. It's what permeates the way our teams think about it. So that's how our values, our purpose and our vision have all come together. And now we are we are implementing that and that drives our strategy. And, and of course, what motivates our people to get out of bed every morning. I think it gives a... a- Great rundown of, of how to a summary of how to run that process. Um, neatly summarised, obviously a six to twelve month process and an ongoing process. But a, what a great summary! Mm. I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from that and how to incorporate those components and and the key leaders within the firm. And I guess a part of that, kind of more or more now on a how is that applied? It, it certainly looks like you're, you're looking to capitalise on some very clear trends in the market as we know it. So I'll run through a couple that I'm going to get you to comment on on each one. So urbanisation and urban renewal, institutional capital looking to allocate to real estate in Australia, um, changing supply chains and digitisation and acknowledgement that stakeholders are increasingly aware of ESG factors um, as, as an overarching um, thematic, um, particularly in the area of uh, reducing carbon emissions and, and better respecting human rights, are so very broad areas that um, there's there's a lot to obviously. So, I imagine these market realities um, greatly influenced the Stockland strategy reset. And maybe if we just touch on these um, kind of sequentially, so so reshaping the portfolio. Can just walk us through the key aspects of that part of the strategy. Yeah, and and the 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 four key trends again, you know, urbanization, digitization, decarbonization, and institutional um, capital growth. These are, in our view, multi generational mm. trends. We'll be talking about them in twenty years from now, and they have profound either positive or negative impacts on the industry we operate in, which is real estate. So that's the framing in which we did our strategy, and and we do constantly check against those themes to make sure our portfolio resilience and the capital allocation decisions we're making are are trying to pick again the tailwinds coming out of those trends and mitigating against the headwinds that those trends cause as well. So I'll give you an example. Digitization is having uh, is a is a net headwind to bricks and mortar retail because it takes that e-commerce takes that sort of 1% off the nominal growth. But it's a commensurately a tailwind for logistics because, you know, we're using logistics assets to distribute that same 1% that comes out out of town, town centers. So that drove a key capital allocation decision on our reshaping, which is downweight town centers. We still love our town centers, but we're curating them to to more essentials needs. And they play a very important role in providing very stable income distribution and the flywheel to the rest of our business. But we were overweight. Before I joined, we were 55% allocated to town centers. Now we're 39% and we're moving to under 30. So that, that, that that's how the reshaping worked. And then commensurately, 
um, and we, we will on our way. Uh, commensurately, we are allocating capital to sectors with tailwinds in our view, which is logistics. So we're now at uh, about 25% going towards 30% allocation and all forms of living sectors. Um, for Stockland, what that means is land lease, master plan communities, and over time in more built form higher density apartments and BBTR. So, so they're the moves we're making uh, in terms of capital allocation. And we've had some early success in some big moves we've made. So, so it's the, it seems to me the enduring characteristics of those broader trends mean that the chances of us looking back and looking back perhaps now how we look at the 3R strategy from many years ago, um, which was um, residential, retail and retirement. So more a, a sector-driven outcome it sounds like you're taking a step back and saying, well, what are the broader trends then? Therefore, what's the asset allocation that makes sense around those broader trends? So hence, we're less likely to look back in 10 years time and say, well, it's the wrong asset allocation. Oh, I would hope so. That's what we're trying to do. And you're the first person who's raised three hours with me since February 2021 when we sold the retirement business, Matt. So, so that that is definitely an artifact of history. But um, no, it, it's not a three-hour strategy or anything like that. It's a highly, um, I would say, dynamic capital allocation. And, and to give you some insight, we we have, you know, reasonable bands around the, the sector allocation. We, you know, 40 to 50% workplace logistics, mainly logistics, 20 to 35% residential, all forms of resi, and uh, the balance um, in to 20 to 30 um, in town centers and a balance and alternates. So, so they are broad bands, but within that we are making every six to 12 months, we look with our research team, we look out at the relative uh, expected performance and, you know, st- risk or standard deviation of that mm. performance over the next three to five years. And then we are move, uh, making moves within that capital allocation uh, and again, allocating more capital to our high conviction sectors and commensurately reducing um, sectors which we think will have headwinds. So it's quite a dynamic capital allocation strategy. And right now we are investing heavily and pivoting heavily to land lease, manufactured housing, and to logistics uh, for all the macro reasons and the sector tailwinds that it offers. So that's how we're running uh, the capital allocation now. The board is very heavily in, involved with management and it is research driven. Um, we have uh, we built a very strong uh, enhanced research capability. We have our own house views. We have our own convictions. And we run our own models on where, how we see the tea leaves, and that's informing our capital allocation decision making. That makes sense because I've noticed those bands have have been tweaked over the last couple of years, and but that makes total sense when the information changes. You're you've got the flexibility of of altering those bands, but in essence they're the same. Materially they're the same, but I know some of the upper ends and lower ends um, have have changed and that you've um, provided a very good explanation for that. When do you think you get there? When have you um, when have you communicated that you'll get to those bands? Because you're almost there. Um, is it a kind of two years out, three years out? Uh, we, we, we're pretty close. Um, two of our locations are within range. Um, you know, our resi is in the 20 to 35, residential is 20 to 35, but we'd like to increase it towards 35. So hence why we're investing more in land lease. Um, logistics workplace, we're also within the band now. Uh, target ban, but investing more in logistics, commensurately 
less in, in workplace. Retail, we are out of the band. Um, we'd like to be under 30%. Again, not to, not to get out of town centers. We really like them. But because of that point I made on the nominal growth being taken away through e-commerce, the ROIC coming out of that business is lower relative to the other sectors that we are investing in. So it has a definite role to play, but probably it's overweight at 39%. So our strategy from here on is to seek capital partners to come in where we can downweight part of our co-investment in in that sector, but start earning more management fees, which would enhance our ROIC out of that sector. So, And also we've got growth through our town centers in our master plan communities, how we invest in that growth, but but with third-party capital. So that's where we are. When do we get there? The strategy we put out is 18 months old. Um, so, you know, it was a three to five year strategy. So within that time frame, Matt, I'm pretty confident we're still on track. It looks, it looks like to me you'll, uh, <clears throat> you will get there. And one of the ways you can is, is through the development component of the business. Um, you did mention at the outset that there would be an acceleration of that um, pipeline and the delivery of that pipeline. What are the two or three things you did to enable that to happen? Because certainly it has happened, looking at the data from two or three years ago to what you've got in the ground now and what what your plans are, that's been an enormous acceleration of that. It's not just something you can flick a switch on. So what are the things you've done there to make that possible? Yeah, I think um, what what gave me you know, when I looked at our portfolio early on, a lot of conference was, and, and this is all credit to my predecessors, we had a really high quality land bank, uh, but it was, in my view, underutilized. And it was partly because um, just a different different brief to the team. So we changed the brief, for example, in logistics, when I went around highly well-located assets and our current $6.4 billion pipeline, we've only acquired one asset, which will have about maybe a $500 million end value. The rest is all our existing land bank. And what we did was back the team. We, I was so surprised when I came because uh, the previous place I worked did not have a high logistics capability. I wasn't really aware of how deep the capability was it's a fully integrated platform that Stockland had, but we were doing 150 million development a year. Now we're doing five to 600. And that ramp up has been immediate in two years on land we own. Planning was easy, easier relative to new sites. And we've really leaned in. So we've done that. Uh, another example was M Park. Uh, when I came, the initial brief was to do a couple of two or three buildings on balance sheet and then do the others. We've got about all up over 12 buildings to do. We changed that by bringing in third-party capital, uh, which is Ivanhoe Cambridge, who are a capital partner. We're doing the first um, four or five buildings with them. And we have already lodged planning for the next six buildings. And the, the, over the last decade, what I've learned about development is time is important because the faster you go on, especially the large schemes, the more opportunities you create, more stakeholders will give you opportunities to add value or community, capital partners, tenants, you know, neighbors, et cetera. And that's what we're seeing. So it was a mindset shift, but we were mindful that the market was top of the cycle. So we didn't actually, when I came in, we stopped buying in about September 21, even in our residential business, because we we were anticipating 
toppy markets would eventually try it. Uh, I remember would, you saying that at the time. Would, would correct, and it, it so happened we didn't see there was Silicon Valley Bank that would go under. The rates would rise by 250 bips, but it felt we were top of the cycle, and and therefore all the activity currently, except in land lease, which is a new sector for us, is on our own land where. It's on historical land costs. We know the markets well, and it's lower risk in my view. So that ramp ups are uh, taking place, and it it has helped our earnings. Uh, you know, we sold shopping centers uh, and and retirement living business, and we managed last year to deliver that without dilution to earnings. In fact, we you know if uh, we delivered within the range last year and this year, we'll show year on year growth in earnings, and that's the reason because we've activated our development pipeline. Now it makes a lot of sense. Can I jump now to capital partnerships? And and I think this is probably the area that you had the most early material significant success, um, in particular with uh, Mitsubishi Estate Asia. I imagine that must have been the most satisfying JV to deliver very early on in your CEO tenure. Yeah, we've been very fortunate that capital partners have, um, you know, both Ivanhoe Cambridge and Mitsubishi Estate Asia have trusted um, the management team and and Stockland in partnering with us. And um, you know, again, um, we 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 are an attractive proposition to capital partners because as a large cap, we are one of the well, we are the only large cap that hadn't done capital partnerships at scale. So we have a clean skin in a way and a clean platform. Uh, but it is a new capability for Stockland uh, because. Um, um, as, as, as I said earlier on in the chat, I spent a, lo- a number of years, like 15 years in funds management, and I know how, how um, you know, it's a different uh, muscle in your brain and your the way you operate in a fiduciary mindset is quite different. So I was very mindful of that when we had our discussions with uh, Mitsubishi and, and with Ivanhoe Cambridge, um, because we wanted, and that's why we put 50, 50 partnerships, very high alignment of interest. Um, but we had a attractive platform to, to offer to our partners. So we are, yeah, very pleased with the three partnerships that are underway and uh, there, there's more to come, but it is very much a bilateral single partner partnership, which in my experience is, you know, they are easier, they're still different, but they're relatively easier than commingled funds and those sorts of strategies, which is not where our strategic intent is. It is on the larger scale, blue chip, um, large scale partnerships where we can uh, have have strong alignment of interest, but also platform capability. And, and, and that, the, that's what we've embarked on. And what are the, what are the key components to getting that muscle memory right? If you had to, you know, spend a minute with someone to say, you know what, to get this capability up and running and do it right and do it well and do it in a sustainable way, you've got to get these two or three, two or three things right. What, what are they? The, the, the first one, Matt, is my team's got to believe in it. And that, that, I think that is where I spent a lot of my time because I had done it. Others in my team have done capital partnership funds management, but Stockland as an organization had not really done it at scale. So I actually, you know, that first six months I spoke about, I remember holding a four-hour workshop with um, 
my leadership team, the top 50. And for those four hours, I actually went into a different persona and I apologized to the team, but I said, I'm going to be Professor Gupta for the next four hours. And let me take you through why capital partnerships are good for Stockland, but more importantly, good for you and your teams and what it means if we succeed in this, because it will offer us to move our market positions, work on larger or bigger or better projects, have access to capital we haven't had for growth, and to build your careers and the careers of your team by interacting with institutional capital. So I had to actually take them through what it meant financially, but also non-financially for them. Um, because I think that is the biggest hurdle uh, of, of moving in it. It is a mindset and my leadership team and my people that work on these have to believe that it is going to be worthwhile for them and the organization. So that was the first thing we did. Once that was done, the rest sort of starts to fall in place. It's more practice. And, and, you know, I, I personally chair the joint owners committees, um, uh, with, with my capital partners because I want to show them that at right at the t highest levels of the organization, this is very important for, for us, uh, and the partnerships mean a lot. So, so that's what, uh, what I, set out to achieve we've obviously hired specialists and you know our cio comes from cppib justin louis so we made some particular hires uh, who had experience in this space uh, so leadership changes our cfo allison harrop again has worked in this area and and also to support the new new strategic direction the chairman and the board uh, also made relevant changes. So we've got now our two new appointments on the board, recent appointments, Laurie Brindle and Adam Tyndall are very experienced long-termers in uh, running third-party capital. Uh, so all that is are the ingredients and then the rest is execution, Matt, and we're in the execution phase to do the you know, do the right thing by capital partners and give them a good experience and uh, have repeat clients, which we're starting to get because Mitsubishi's come in on our second partnership. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense and really insightful actually on how to think through such a, a shift in uh, in an organisation. So retail and industrial would um, lend themselves naturally to this type of structure. How are you thinking about those two asset classes? Yeah, over time, our ambition is um, to really, you know, we are in, you know, we've done about to finish the master plan communities one, which we flagged at a half year result. So we'll have three partnerships running, one in sort of commercial land lease and our master plan communities. Ideally, over the coming couple of years to three years, we'd like each of our sectors to have the right capital structure in place. So town centers, definitely logistics. Um, but over time, we've got some large assets like uh, Yonora, uh, which could be a multi-billion dollar scheme. We've got a couple of commercial assets. They're, they're conducive to capital partnering. And eventually, once our pipeline starts producing the more capital intensive mixed use assets, which we're working on, they will require partnerships. So they, they're the that's the journey we're on. But ideally, we want less but larger scale bilateral relationships because we, we, we think we can serve uh, the client better and, and it's strategically more aligned with uh, where we want to take Stockland. That was part A of my discussion with Stockland CEO Tarun Gupta. A lot of great insights there, I think you'll agree. So please join me in a couple of weeks' time for Part B, the discussion. In Part B, we talk about Australia's housing supply problem, which in reality today is actually an affordability problem. 
Tarun also gives us his views on potential government policies that may be implemented in order to solve these challenges. We also talk about land lease, an asset class that has been institutionalized and one that Stockland is taking a large interest in. So join us in a couple of weeks' time for my discussion with Tarun Gupta, who is just the fifth CEO of Stockland in the last 70 years. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.